There's got to be another verse to that song. Oh, praise the Lord. Today we begin a new series, a series in the book of Ruth. You know, this book has been called the greatest piece of literature of all times. Another author looked at the passage and goes, hey, Ruth is the Cinderella of the Bible. It's the story of how a pagan girl named Ruth comes to become part of the covenant people of Israel. In these brief 100 verses that make up the entire book, we see this young woman escape from a land of unbelief and become the wife of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, the foreshadowing of Christ. This is a story of famine, family, death, and of love, and of hope. Despite all our focus on the redemptive power of the book and the love that it presents, it begins in desperate times. And my slides will show up some. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't have slides. Turn her off, Chris. In desperate times. These desperate times begin with the material famine in the land there in verse 1. There's a famine in a land, and when you read the Old Testament, famines are very common. Abraham experienced it. Isaac experienced it. Joseph, remember, was one who gathered in all the corn and all the wheat for a famine of seven years, which forced his father to come to Egypt and the children of Egypt, uh, children of Israel into the land of Egypt. The prophets, time and time again, experienced the famine that took away much of the joy of the people of Israel. We get a picture of that a little bit in Alabama when the weatherman comes on on the television and says, there's going to be a snowstorm. And everybody heads out to the Kroger's and to Winn-Dixie and they begin to buy up all the bread and all the milk and all the batteries and all the water, everything you can get. And it's only a few hours that when you go in there, there's nothing on the shelves. But we really get that picture because those empty shelves will be refilled in a couple of days. And there's more food in most of our homes than we could imagine. And we could probably eat a week or two. Well, some of us could. Okay, Jackie hasn't been to the grocery store. And I'm tired of eating Fruit Loops. Don't tell her that, okay? But, you know, because she'd just tell you he can go to the grocery store just as fast as I can. So, you know, she'll just put it right back on me, okay? But the reality of it is... When you go without food for a day, and some of you have tried that on on a diet, haven't you? Well, I'll just miss a meal. And that's okay for a day. And you miss that same meal for the next day, and it gets a little worse. And before long, we realize that, you know, going hungry is not a fun thing to do. And going without the comfort foods that we enjoy is not a good thing to do. But we do understand that. There are men and women around this world, even today as we speak, that are going without a meal, that are going without two meals, that their portions on their plate are getting smaller and smaller. 
we realize that hunger has a terrible effect upon this body. The mind finds itself and finds its ability to understand and concentrate and to concentrate to be lowered. It is a hard thing for the mind to work properly when it's hungry and when it's without those nutrients. The eyes become weak and maybe even blind over a period of time. And the mouth and uh, the gums begin to bleed and we begin to find decay in our teeth. Our heart rate begins to decrease. And as we watch those pictures on television, we see those children in the arms of the mother, unable to move, unable to blink their eyes, unable to enjoy going out and playing because they're hungry and their body is depleted. Their bones have become brittle and break easily. Their skin becomes dry, dehydrated, suffering from the loss of vitamin A. It's hard to watch those movies. It's hard to watch those 30-minute segments, is it not? It would be hard as a parent to hear your child ask, can I have more when there is no more? To hear them cry, I just want something to eat. To plead for food day in and day out. Jesus understood that. Because though he found himself in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, Satan came to him. And what was his very first temptation there in the book of Matthew? Change these stones into bread. Then your hunger will be fed. He understood, Jesus understood. He understood even more as he quoted and as he thought about the words found in Psalms, the 37th chapter, verse 25, in which he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. Jesus understood the hunger that he could drive men and women to do things that they would never think about if they had been fed. But there was not only a material famine in the land, there was a moral famine in the land. Verse 1 tells us that it was in the time of the judges. And recall this timeline that takes place in this book because Moses has led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the wilderness. He brings them to the uh, Jordan River. And because of sin in his life, he is unable to go in. And so where does he go? He goes to the highest mountain where? In Moab. And he goes to that mountain in Moab and he looks into the promised land and he sees the land of milk and honey and he's unable to go in. And we find that Joshua replaces him as the captain of the army, as the general to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And after they take the promised land and after the land has been divided, they're all relaxing in their land. They're all enjoying their land and there is no rule in the land. There is no leader. And as you read through the book of Judges, notice those famous words that are always there. Those words that come back time and time again that says the Israelites had failed. The Israelites had wandered away from God. And as you look at that passage of Scripture, as you look at the book of Judges, time and time again, the Israelites have failed. Notice verse 11 of chapter 2. 
And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baal. Almost every chapter in the book of Judges begins that way. Now the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And it become a cycle, did it not? They would do evil. God would call and raise up a judge. He would redeem the land. He would free the land from those that had overcome. And they would do what? Rejoice and then go right back to doing what they were always doing. To the point that the end of Judges, what does it say? In those days there was no king in the land and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of turbulence. It was a time of social upheaval. It was a day marked by lawlessness and idolatry and false religion. It was a time of civil war and extreme unbelief and not much different than what I see on the front pages of our paper and on the Internet as we look at USA Today and all those things. It's much the same way today. There's a shooting here. There's a kidnapping here. There's molestation here. There's domestic violence there. There is upheaval in the land. There is civil war. There is hunger. There is famine. There is death beyond our imagination. And men and women are doing what? They're doing that which is right in their own eyes. No moral compass. No right or wrong. No value of life. We don't cherish the unborn child. We don't cherish our seniors who have worked and given and built and contributed to this land. We lose respect. We lose honor. It was also a time of dangerous choices. Decision making. You know, many times we have to take time to learn how to make those decisions. To learn a decision making model so that we can implement it in our lives. But we realize that decisions determine our destiny. The decisions we make as a young person in high school and in college determines our destiny. If you want to marry a Texan, what do you got to do? Move to Texas. Okay. If you move to Texas, the chances of marrying a Texan becomes what? Okay, it becomes great. Your decisions affect your destiny. But as I look at that, I realize that decisions, there's three ways you can face decisions. The first one is you can endure the crisis. You can endure the danger that is there. And if you endure that trial, you soon become the master. It soon becomes the master of your life. You see, if you endure the famine, the famine rules every single day. So you can endure the trial. You can escape the trial. You can run away from it, much like Elimelech did. You can run away with it, but you will probably miss the purpose that God wants for you to achieve in your life. And it's easy to run, isn't it? When crises come into our life, when trials come into our life, when decisions are need to be made, it's easier just to avoid it and to blot it out and not do it and not make it, to run from it. But there's a third way you can deal with that trial. You can embrace it. And if you embrace the trial, 
If you embrace the famine, you will find that it will become your servant. If you embrace the famine, then you go to Moab and do what? You buy all the grain you can and bring it back to Bethlehem and do what? Sell it at a markup. If you embrace it. Or you can escape and move to Moab. Or you can endure it. The pain, the frustration, and the agony. Elimelech chose to leave the promised land. It was a conscious decision to leave Bethlehem, Judea. To leave the house of bread. To leave the place of praise. It was the promised land. It was their inheritance. It is what God gave unto them. And they willingly left it. He left his inheritance. He forgot about the sacrifice that had been made. You know, as I get older, I realize my kids don't always cherish what I think is important. I think the things around my house are valuable, and they look at the things around my house and go, Oh, brother, so out of date, so uncool. I wouldn't be caught with that piece of furniture in my life. Okay, and my, hey, I do that same thing with my mom. My mom says, It's all yours, son. And I'm going, Are you kidding me? I couldn't even get a good dollar at a yard sale. But she thinks it's the most valuable thing in the world. It's what she's passing on. It's what she's sacrificed for. It's what she's given for. And many times we forget the sacrifice that was made. And Elimelech neglected and turned his back on that sacrifice and upon that inheritance. They chose to live in a polluted land. They violated the clear commandment of God. The commandment of God that said what? Do not associate with these other races of people. Do not intermarry. Do not worship their false gods. Do not participate in their cultural lifestyle. You are to live a life separated unto yourself and to keep yourself pure before me. But Elimelech and Naomi chose to go to Moab. Now, they chose to go to Moab, but as the scripture says there in verse 1, they intended just to do what? To sojourn. It's an important, pass- it's an important word. You need to circle the word sojourn. sojourn. They were just simply going down there to visit. Just to rest a little ways, just to get their their bodies renewed, to get some food in them, and to move on with their life. They intended to sojourn, to turn aside from the road and rest in Moab. And when you read Psalms, the 108th chapter, verse 9, the psalmist describes Moab as the wash pot. And what did he mean by wash pot? You recall the tradition that when visitors would come to your house that they would take out a thing of water and they would wash the feet? The psalmist is speaking to that wash pot, a dirty place, a place that you wouldn't keep in your house, a place of pollution. They wanted to sojourn, leaving the house of bread, the place of praise, to sojourn in the wash pot of the world. 
in the pollution of the world. Third, they chose to linger in a prodigal land. Elimelech took his family and went to Moab, and there they sojourned. No, they stayed. The word is they continued. They continued. They became part of the culture. They became part of the society. We don't know whether they took on the false gods. We don't know whether they took on the sin of the Moabites, but they became part of that land. Days became weeks, weeks became months, and before you knew it, it was 10 years in the land of Moab. And they were farther away from God than they'd ever been, they ever could have imagined. Notice there was also a time of deadly consequences. Sin always carries with it some harsh consequences. And this was the case in the life of Elimelech and his family as well. There had already been some discipline in the house. Because you see, the decision to move away from God and the decision to leave Bethlehem and the decision to leave the house of bread doesn't come overnight. It's something that grows. It's something that is meditated upon. It is something that is developed and matures. It is not an aha moment that you just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to Moab. It's something that you wrestle with and something that you contemplate in your life. God must have tried to get Emelech's attention. He gave him two sons. And his son's name interpreted as sick and wasting away. What a message. Because in the Old Testament, names mean something. Names send a message. Names are telling a story. And here, Elimelech is given two sons, but the picture of these sons is not very strong. God is trying to speak to him. God is trying to get his attention. He's trying to uh, get his focus back where it ought to be. And at the first sign of backsliding in our lives, at the first time that we move away from God, God begins to move upon us. Do you remember that? Do you remember that time that you were contemplating, that you were debating, that you were assessing, that you were trying to determine God's will for your life? You determined whether you were going to move away from him and his spirit began to touch your life. He may begin to speak to us in this process with a very small voice like he did Ezekiel. He spoke to Ezekiel, but he also spoke to Elijah there in 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, verse 2. Very pass, a very powerful passage of Scripture that I think is important for us to hear because Elijah finds himself in a cave, sulking. He finds himself in a cave, rebelling against God. He finds himself in a cave, running away, escaping the challenge that is before him. And notice in 1 Kings 19, chapter verse 12, what he says. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart 
and shattered the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the winds, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood in the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here? Teenagers, have you ever found yourself in that place where you woke up and you go, why am I here? If my dad fights me, he's going to kill me. But God's found you already. Husband, have you found yourself in a position you shouldn't be? And God's still, small voice whispers in your ear, What are you doing? But God also speaks through the thunderous voice of a prophet. Brother Mike was here for the last three weeks, and it was a great time. Katie was in the service, and previously she says, Pop, you're loud. You're loud. So Mike got to speak three Sundays. I was happy to take Katie out to hear her say, Mike, Mike's loud. <laughs> because you see, sometimes you have to be loud to wake them up in the balcony. Oh, we don't have a balcony, right? Sometimes you have to be loud to wake them up on the back row. Sometimes you have to be loud to wake them up on the front pews. But you see, the voice of the prophet was loud when he stood before King David. King David, who had looked upon Bathsheba, who had looked and taken her unto his own, who realized that she was married to a soldier and took that soldier and put him on the front lines and had him killed, just as sure as if he had taken a weapon and thrust it into his heart. David killed him. And the prophet stood before King David and lamented a story about sheep. And David became furious. And when the prophet said unto him, you're the man. You're the man. The voice of the prophet struck to the very core of King David. God speaks to us. God disciplines us. He moves amongst us. And he uses the prophets of old. And he uses the famines of the land. And he uses the challenges of life to get our attention. To get us focused upon him. But notice not only was there discipline already in the home, but there was death. In spite of Naomi's and Elimelech's relationship with God, in spite of all the, the moving of the Holy Spirit and the moving of God in his life, regardless of all the teaching that they had had, they still moved to Moab. They still moved. And in that move, 
His true heart was revealed. He didn't trust God to give him food. He didn't trust the word of God and believe that it was honest and sincere. He lacked the faith. And after a time in Moab, what happens? Elimelech dies. The rabbinical teaching is is that he died as punishment from God. And it wasn't much longer than his sons died. God calls and he calls and he calls. We cannot run forever. There is no place that you can hide. He will discipline us. Our rebellion will end up in spiritual death and could even end up in physical death. James 1.15 says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. It's a cycle, isn't it? And all through that cycle, God speaks. In every phase that moves us farther and farther away from God, he keeps knocking. He keeps knocking on the door. Do you hate that? Okay, there's people who come to the door and they will not leave. It's almost as a... It's upsetting as getting a gazillion emails. Word of warning. Parentheses. Never, never online. When that pops up saying, would you like to have a lower interest rate? Would you like to use our instrument and find out how, to, how much that would be? And I went, yeah, I, can, I like instruments. I can fill out this instrument and that'd be great. Don't ever, ever do that. Because you will get a gazillion telephone calls. And if you don't believe me, come look at my phone. I have a gazillion of them from Seattle, from Florida, from Chicago, from parts unknown. It is amazing how that can be so annoying. But you know what? The still small voice of God is knocking on our heart's door. And we get so upset at it. And instead of opening opening the door and walking in, we continue to reject. And we continue to refuse. And we continue to move away from God. We continue to reject his tugging and his longing in our life. But notice the last thing. There was defeat in that home. Naomi and her two daughters-in-laws were left in a society in which they looked upon widows as the poorest of the poor. They had no children to care for them. They had no one that was going to take care of their needs day to day. They were deserted, alone in a foreign land with no support system. I love being in the military and I love going to foreign lands because guess what? No matter where I went, America was there. 
I went to Korea, and outside the post was Outback. Kentucky Fried Chicken almost on every corner in Seoul, Korea. I went to Kuwait, and there was the Golden Arches. What a fabulous, fabulous place. I went to Iraq, and there was Pizza Hut. What a great life we live. Fantastic. It was that no matter where I went, they had built a little part of America. There was no little part of Israel and Moab, okay? There was nothing familiar that made Naomi feel comfortable in Moab. Everywhere she looked, there were foreigners. And everywhere she looked, there was rebellion. And everywhere they looked, there were those eyes that were looked upon her, despising her, rejecting her. She was deserted in a foreign land. She was discouraged. There was no hope. Her husbands had died. There was no hope for grandchildren. Her children, her sons had died. There was no possibility of reconciliation. There was defeat. She was beaten down, grief-stricken, broken-hearted, crying, totally outside the joy of her life. All Naomi got to show, or had to show for her disobedience, was three gravestones. Such is the nature of sin. That is not the end of this story. I read this and I told the guys this morning. I said, oh, how am I going to preach this? It's negative. It's, yeah, man, it's coming down. But you have to read verse 6, okay? Because, you see, this is just the beginning of Ruth. This is how it gets started. This is where Naomi finds herself doing what in verse 6? Notice verse 6 with me. And what she says, Then she arose with her daughter-in-laws, uh, daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had what? She had heard in the land of Moab, what? What did she hear? She heard that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. She heard down in Moab the message of God had overcome all that was around and the word of God had come to her as the loneliest of lonely, as the despised in the nation. The word had come to her that God had visited his people. God had visited his people. God was still at work. God was still moving. God was still answering prayer. God was still touching lives. God was still blessing Israel. The house of bread, Bethlehem, was now filled. There was rejoicing in the streets. There was a happiness and a peace that only God could bring. God was working. She had to return. She had to go back. Because her disobedience and her disbelief and her lack of faith had only brought her disparity and only had brought her disappointment and had only brought death. She had to go back to God. She had to go back to Bethlehem. It was the place of rejoicing. It was the place of joy. And 
And this morning, early, I was wondering, what would tell this story? What would communicate this? What do you think Naomi felt when she heard the word of the Lord that God was moving? If that doesn't touch your heart, it's the message of the day. There's famine in the land. There's decisions to be made all around us. There's frustration and there's pain and there's hunger. But we can return. We can return to the Yahweh of life. We can return to the God of our fathers. We can return to the forgiver of our sins. We can be made whole today. He is alive, waiting to work in our lives. Shall we stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed? God is speaking today. He's speaking to you. You may have sojourned in the land of Moab. You may have thought that you were just going to enjoy it for a little while. But it got a hold of you. That anger possesses you. That unforgiveness possesses you. That lie possesses you. That unfaithfulness possesses you. You can return. He waits for you with his arms wide open, saying, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Father God, we come now as we give this opportunity to share in that which you've led in their lives and in our lives. Father, there's decisions that need to be made. May we understand we can return, that you love us, that you're waiting for us. You've already forgiven us because you love us that much. If we'll just step out, We'll just make that move. If we'll just say yes to the Lord. Lord, there may be someone here who has never received you as their Lord and Savior. May they do that today. Because you are waiting for them. Loving them. Use these moments to receive honor and glory in your name. Amen.